This is Living Connected, and we are your hosts, Katie and Kyle. Hey there, Living Connected. Before we get on to our topic of meeting violence with empathy, a pathway to reduce harm, I would like to read a small portion out of Glennon Doyle's book called Untamed. There's a chapter called Racists. And on page 219, she says, I am afraid to put these thoughts inside a book that will not be in people's hands until a year later from now. I know that I will later read this and see the racism in it that I cannot see right now. But I think of the words of Dr. Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Doing our best now is an active thing, and so is knowing better. We don't show up and then wait to magically know better. We show up and then, when we are corrected, we keep working. We listen hard so we can know better next time. This portion of the book really resonated with me because there might be parts of this episode that might be racist. And... Even though I couldn't come up with anything that I have know of in the episode, I had been reflecting back and remembering, you know, the racist jokes that I've heard. And of course, I laughed at them. I wasn't even probably aware of it maybe at the time or thought that it was a horrible joke, but laughed anyway and owning up the fact that, yep, There was a racist joke, and yep, I laughed, and I fed into all of the ways that we contribute to all of this. So, I wanted to take ownership of that. I still am going to be reflecting about whether or not I've said or did anything in the past. I know that I am always trying to be better and do better, and I really appreciate Glennon Doyle's words and giving some compassion and self-forgiveness if there are things that I have said or Katie said or any of those things in the episode that might have come up come off that way and I really hope not. So on and upward there is a lot of violence going on in the world right now. There is a way to see through the violence with the lens of empathy We invite you to join us in exploring ways to reduce violence by offering deep listening and acknowledgement. This can be a very powerful and transforming factor in the path of people's lives from all backgrounds and walks of life. We have a special guest today, and she is going to be my co-host today, and we are going to dig deep into this topic together. Her name is Katie Tomer, and she has used NBC in prison settings as well as in higher education settings pertaining to racism and discrimination. Her past work includes community-engaged research and policy reform with the Justice Policy Program, as well as taking action towards shifting institutional racism with the Intercultural Diversity Advisory Council in Maine. Here we go! Good morning, Living Connected listeners. It's morning for us. I don't know whether it's afternoon or evening for you. I am here on a very special day. I have a guest co-host, and Katie is here with me, and Kyle is um, taking the day off today because it's his birthday, and I want to honor his birthday and say happy birthday, Kyle. Yeah, so today's going to be just Katie and I. Um, Probably in the past episodes, Kyle and I kind of talked a small little bit about how we recorded with Katie, and our recording got lost, and we were so sad about that. (laughs) So she's here today with me, and we're going to be talking about that same subject we wanted to talk about many months ago. And I'm super excited to have you here today. Welcome to Living Connected. Yeah, thank you so much for the warm welcome, Katie. And uh, if Kyle gets to listen to this later, happy birthday, Kyle. (laughs) Uh, And I'm so glad that we're able to re-record today 
And it was unfortunate we lost the first recording, but here we are now and we're recording. So that's good. Yes, 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 and yes. So we're going to do a little check-in. So how are you doing this morning, Katie? Uh, well, so I'm actually on East Coast time, so technically it's afternoon for me. Oh, yeah. And, <laughs> <Right>. um, <laughs> yeah. So far today, I've just been getting things together. Um, I'm assisting on another Zoom training later today, so I noticed myself getting a little bit ahead and thinking like, oh, am I going to be able to get everything I need done? Uh, and it's nice to kind of sit here and check in with you to slow down and also to just be fully present. So it feels nice. So thanks for kind of asking how my day is going so far and good morning to you on the West Coast. So it's so nice that we can uh, connect with each other with no geographical bounds in this moment. Yes. I really liked how you were like, okay, we can take a deep breath and slow down and kind of be together in this moment that, um, because you're right, like I'm, you know, frantic about doing this or that. So this is, yes, it's really great that we get to do this together. Um, I definitely, in the mornings, um, I do a little bit of meditating and I do this tea meditation um, along with some of the uh, Namaspa on their Facebook page, they have some guided meditations. So I do a little bit of both. And it kind of just brings me down a little bit and like eases myself in the morning and I drink my coffee and the tea meditation, even though I drink coffee, <laughs> is I just love the smell of coffee so much. I sit there and I feel the cup and I take in the smells and I you know, smell it, taste it. And then while the background of the meditation is happening, the guided one, I'm breathing. It's just so nice to like be in present time and just be in the moment and be mindful about what we're doing because the rest of my day is just like, go, go, okay, this, that, okay, I got this planted, rah, rah, rah. So it's good to just take it easy in the morning. And I really like that. And, um, so I got that in before and it lined up perfectly with us meeting this morning. So it was really nice. <laughs> Excellent. Good. I'm so glad to hear that you were able to really enjoy the coffee and be fully present with it. And yeah, it's such a nice way to practice warmth and empathy for ourselves when we give ourselves the gift of presence and we actually sit with what's happening with where our feet are. So that's nice. Yeah, actually, I wanted to comment on what you just said because my acupuncturist gave me this journal prompt and I've been journaling every morning usually and it does. It takes that moment for us, like the meditation takes us to a place where we can really like self-nourish and self-reflect and give us some self-care to give those affirmations because I've, so the acupuncturist gave me this prompt that said, what needs to die? And I've been pondering about it and I've been wanting to like write, uh, write a poem or write stuff down. And to me, what needed to die were three things. I'm not enough, I'm not worthy, and um, I don't matter. And so I wrote this poem of what needs to die and it turned out actually really good. And the meditating in the morning, it offers the reverse of that, where I can say, you know what, Mr. Hank, my rabbit, he's totally worth it, and he's totally enough, and you know what, he thinks the same of me, that I am totally worth it, and of course, with other human beings on the physical world, yes, I am, and so you have to, like, soak all of that in, and that meditating brings that awareness back to my heart, and so I'm not sitting with these negative beliefs about myself because a lot of times when we get out of relationships or things happen, we develop these negative beliefs about us. And it really matters when we can, you know, nurture that part and say, yes, you are enough. Yes, you are. And yeah, it's, uh, yes, it's a very good tool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, what you shared around just um, having that time to self-reflect and then also meeting ourselves with warmth and tenderness and care and that we do matter and that we are of value, I think that ties um, and connects to really just what this podcast is focused on today with, you know, meeting violence with empathy and how it's a pathway to reduce harm. 
And it's a great way to reduce harm within our own selves and also a great way to reduce harm from a social and political perspective. And if we kind of look at what's happening in the world right now with so much social and political unrest, a lot of what is needed right now is a deep acknowledgement. Deep acknowledgement in so many different ways, but especially first and foremost, that the foundation of this country was built off the backs of people of color. So if we look at that foundational harm and offer deep recognition, acknowledgement, and warm accompany to that, imagine how different things could be. Yeah, that's super powerful. Things would be so different if we honored the people that actually formed this country and we took that away from them. And it's been going on for so many years before we were even born. It's astounding to me that we don't recognize that. And we, as I'm saying, is those that are not conscious of the fact that people of color were the ones that were here first and the ones that have been treated this whole time just like crap, period. And it saddens my heart to think that we don't have that knowledge and background, most of us, or some of us. I don't want to generalize everybody because there are a lot of people who are very much aware. Yeah, I think that's really, I think that's really beautiful what you just shared though, Katie. And I think part of it is, is each of us acknowledging that we all don't know everything, but that we have the willingness and openness to learn and to hear perspectives that are different from our own and also to educate ourselves to really look deeply into whatever the deep systemic roots of racism are. Uh, and, and then also, this kind of segues into just around the conversation around violence and, and how it relates and correlates to racism. When we look at racism, um, there sometimes is this rebuttal to um, someone being accused of being a racist or to saying something or doing something that's that's racist. And the immediate response in some cases for individuals is to feel defensive and to say, well, I'm not a racist. And, you know, when we look at what racism is, racism is, is actions. It's, a, it's thoughts, behaviors, and it's aligning with certain racist policies. And the opposite of racism is not not a racist. The opposite of racism is anti-racist. And this is talked about in Ibram Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And I'm sure there are many other scholars that have spoken to this. But when we look at anti-racist as the way moving forward, as the way of nonviolence, as the way of creating a pathway to reduce harm, what it does is it's continual reflection on what our thoughts, behaviors, and actions are and are they anti-racist in nature? Mm -hmm. And when we look at how to reduce racism, it really starts within ourselves. Yes, there is a deeper systemic policy root issue, but I feel that overall there needs to be both an inward journey and an, an external journey as well of shifting things that are systemically racist and then also shifting things within ourselves. And, you know, for me, I can speak from personal experience and, um, you know, Kenny shares about this in his book as well. Um, so for me, I've had to I've had to face my own internalized racism being part white and being part Penobscot and Maliseet. So I was told, don't tell anyone that you're Indian. I was just going to say, um, if you would be willing to share some of your experiences with um, racism in your own personal life. Sure, sure, yes. Thank you for thank you for asking that question, Katie. So, for me being part Penobscot and Maliseet and also part white, uh, growing up I felt like I had a foot in two different worlds and because the native side of my family, quite a few of those family members were in and out of incarceration as well as struggling with varying substance use disorders, there became this internalized racism within myself that, that the native side of me was, quote, wrong, or that the native side of me was trouble. And for me, I had to work to dismantle and de-link the fact that my native ancestors and my native family members 
The fact that they were native was not wrong. The fact that they had experienced incarceration as well as substance use disorders didn't, didn't mean that because they experienced those things and they were also native, like those, that correlation was not because they were Native American. And in a sense, it is because they were Native American because of the intergenerational trauma. But what's been happening in society specifically related to Black communities is that there's this storyline that says Black communities are dangerous or not safe. When really... Mm -hmm. It's communities of unemployed people that are not safe. So what needs to happen is a change in dialogue of not what the ethnicity or race is of a community or neighborhood, but more so of the fact that it's unemployed communities where, where things can be more unsafe. And imagine how that would shift our media and the way that different people of different colored skin are portrayed, whether that be in movies and on everyday news and, again, on social media. And tying that back to my own personal experience with violence or racism, you know, for me, it was challenging being told by white family members, don't tell anyone that you're Indian. And then on the other side of that, um, experiencing from Native family members that really um, have so much mistrust with people that are white. And because I look white and I'm completely white seeming or white passing, being told things about if white people are on the reservation, it's not their responsibility what happens to a white person on the reservation after dark. So being, being in this space of acknowledging that there has been so much harm and distrust and conflict between white and not white populations, it, it just goes to show, and, and at least from my own personal experience, that there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. Because if these are interactions that I've been happening, that I've been experiencing um, well into the 2000s, this isn't something that, that is just of our past. It's still very current. Yeah. And if we look from a brief historical perspective, you know, communities of color have been targeted for years, years and years and years. And uh, indigenous people, specifically Wabanaki people, which is the Penobscot and Maliseet tribes are under the umbrella of Wabanaki people. They have been on Maine territory, or now what is called Maine, for the last 13,000 years. Yeah. And if, and you know, if we look at, you know, quote, who has been here first or all, all of the different things that have occurred, there are so many treaties that haven't been honored. And even to this day, there are things that still happen in indigenous communities and communities of color. For instance, uh, oil companies still specifically target indigenous communities to put their fracking their fracking pits or and oil wells and all of these things on indigenous territory because they know that those communities don't have the power to fight back and, and that in and of itself you know for me if I were to speak from an NBC perspective people are longing for justice people are longing for fairness people are longing for equity mm -hmm. you know we're not longing for um, one population to be so much greater and so much better than the other, yeah. people are just longing for equity. And, you know, Katie, I'm not sure if you have any thoughts or anything that I've shared so far. Feel free to kind of uh, let me know what stood out to you or what, what would be helpful for me to elaborate more on. No, it's what, uh, what you have said has been amazing and awesome and beautiful. And um, yeah, it's a lot to take in for some people who might just be coming to this realization of what all of this has impacted these people of color, has impacted you and your family, and how it is that you go on into your life. And I really liked what you said in the beginning, which was there's two journeys to take, one inward and one outward. And... It does. It starts with that self-reflection and taking in um, people's experiences and really reflecting on how this has impacted um, these people and where all of this started. 
And it started, I listened to, I don't know if anyone else has listened to this, and I don't know if you have or not. Um, I listened to 1617. It's a podcast of six or seven episodes, and it takes you through a lot of the systemic um, ways of how um, Native Americans, Blacks, have all been treated up until present time. And it's not just like you were saying, it's not just about the systemic part. It's also about the parts of within the families and the family traditions and how you had experiences where there have been things that still weren't honored in those tribes. And we still, for me anyway, have never known probably that these honor systems, these agreements have not been taken care of and here we are trampling all over it and it's so sad to think that this is still going on and bringing that awareness inward and really taking it in and understanding that exactly what you said is that they are just longing for justice they're longing for equality and we have to eventually have the shared reality for all of that And I'm really glad that we're talking about this today because it's still a thing. There's still protests happening. It still needs to be said and it still needs to be out there. And um, I'm so glad that you're here to share that with us. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, what you you were sharing uh, made me think about how like these protests are still happening for good reason because needs are being articulated clearly for for what populations of color are needing. They're articulating it clearly in order for people of color to access safety for themselves and for future generations. So so that's why these protests are still happening. That's why the conversation is still relevant because it doesn't seem like people are hearing that there are still some needs for overall safety and well-being being met. And when we look at it, yes. by making sure that all populations and that all populations of color have their needs met, it doesn't mean that individuals that are white don't have their needs met. You know, right now the conversation is about making sure that populations of color get their needs met. That's how, that's how conversations work. Like Katie, if I were to come to you and you wanted to share what you had for lunch with me and I'm like, wait, 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 I had this for lunch. I wasn't actually listening to you and hearing what you had to share about what you had for lunch. It's important to acknowledge that. Right. <laughs> yeah. When when individuals are sharing Black Lives Matter, people of color color lives matter. What what that's saying is that it doesn't mean that white lives matter any less. It's just saying that we also want to make sure that people of color's lives matter because there's been there's been this blatant assault on populations of color for generations, generations after generations. And if yeah. we tie it back to indigenous populations, you know, there were bounties out. There are documents out there that offered hefty sums of money for the time for a native person's scalp. Mm. And most of the time, the way that things are articulated in media or um, in movies or, you know, varying platforms, it never shows that it was white people of the time that were originating and starting the scalping. So I think it's I think it's just an important piece to note that the violence, it's really, people are done with it. People are no longer having it. And people have been done with it for generations, but it's finally come to, it's come to a head where, you know, open- It has, dis- yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And openly discussing white privilege is so powerful and so important during this time, you know, because populations, even white populations that come from a lower socioeconomic status, some of them are like, what do you mean? How can I say that I'm privileged when I came from a poor background? And if we look at it, it's not, it's not just from an economic perspective, it's from a social perspective. You know, like I have never had to experience in this life driving while black. Like I've never had to be concerned with when I get pulled over, is this my last, is this going to be my last breath? You know, that's not something that I have had to experience. Yeah, exactly. So, and it's, it's deep. It's really deep. And when I explore how we can reduce the violence, I think first and foremost, just allowing people's feelings and needs to be heard. 
recognized and acknowledged. And for pathways moving forward, I would love to see a truth commission for the Black American history because what it would do is it would give voice to the thousands and thousands of experiences of people of color in this country, specifically the Black population. And I can speak from experience of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that took place in Maine, specifically for Maine's Wabanaki people. And it was a lot. It was a lot. And it was the first of its kind in the Northeast for Native American Wabanaki people to be able to have their voices heard. Um, Because many Wabanaki people were forcibly removed from their land, treaties were broken, children were taken from reservations at disproportionate levels and put into boarding schools where they were not allowed to speak their native language. They were abused in a number of different ways in those boarding schools. And then when those native youth were around 18 years old, they would be sent back to the reservations and they couldn't even speak their own native language because they weren't allowed to for however many Mm. years that they were at the boarding schools. So then there was this ostracization that happened for, you know, the youth that were taken and then sent back to the reservation. And all of that is intergenerational trauma. And, you know, the intergenerational trauma is also passed down from... Uh, individuals that were enslaved in this country. So the truth-telling needs to continue happening. And it can start with our schools, of what's taught in history in our schools. It can start day-to-day, individuals doing their own research. We don't necessarily need to take a college class or learn about it just in schools. Like, this is is independent research that we can do on our own. You said so many good things. Ugh. It really impacted me when you were talking about the white privilege on not being that person being pulled over and and just in fear for their life. And it's just to me feels scary to think that there are people out there who are scared to get pulled over. They live in this fear and it is a traumatic thing because this is how they grew up. This is the social norm for the people of color to feel scared to even just be pulled over because this is how our society has driven it this direction and to have that privilege of not worried about whether or not I'm going to get shot I feel so grateful that (sighs) holy cow like I haven't had to experience that and to ugh, it's it can be so angering because I want fairness that I want what I've had for other people to be able to experience and it just makes me want to wring my fingers and just you know curl up and like tense and my body just feels so like just crunched together because of how this has been turning into and Marshall Rosenberg says in his book that at the root of much, if not all violence, whether verbal, psychological, or physical, whether among family members, tribes, or nations, is a kind of thinking that attributes the cause of conflict to the wrongness in one's rival and a corresponding inability to think for oneself or others in terms of vulnerability. And in vulnerability, he's speaking of um, what one might be feeling, fearing, yearning, or missing. And it's so true that what you were saying, that it's not just systemic, it's also social, it's also emotional, it's also physical of all of these levels that this violence is occurring in. And the protests are really making a statement this time and I'm so glad that they are because it is about sharing and experiencing what it is that they are going through and I want to hear what they have to what they had for lunch I want to know because it's not about me right now it's about them right now and how do you reduce all that is to allow them to share to protest to make a difference with what is going on. And I know Marshall is not necessarily for violence 
sometimes it takes that violence to the next step to make change happen. And with the protests and with the rioters and all of this stuff is like they're standing up wanting to be heard so badly that at some point you have to draw the line and say, stop, look at us, here we are. And, you know, even though violence is not good because we want to reduce that, sometimes it just takes that extra step to say, hey, we need to make a change and we need to make a difference for everybody that is going on. So it's not about me. And yes, I'm white. It's about hearing them and hearing all people of color and hear what they've had to go through and to really soak that in because they've had such different lives and different ways of living than I will have ever imagined. So that empathy and hearing them on what they want to say, we have to make that known and to be open. I mean, we can't just be shut down and not willing to hear what they have to say. So, you know, which is that vulnerability piece. And here's what they're doing to make themselves feel heard and their vulnerability is coming out so important and so powerful for everybody and how do we move forward with all of this is which is what you were moving along to say (laughs) yeah absolutely and um just kind of reflecting on some things that you shared so it's important for everyone to acknowledge that our own needs will never be fully met at the expense of someone else's needs So, and I'm going to kind of say that again in a different way to kind of, I can't quite think of the quote off the top of my head, but it's something around the idea that all of our needs are intertwined with each other. So any population can only truly thrive when all populations are thriving together. Like when the entire human race is thriving together, can we all benefit? Um, Can we all reach our fullest potential? Yes. So that's one thing. And... Another thing that I think of is based on the quote that you shared, Katie, from Marshall, where he talks about whenever at the root of much, if not all violence, it boils down to a kind of thinking that attributes the causes of conflict to wrongness in one's adversaries. So when I think of that, or when I hear that statement, I think of the way that people of color have been dehumanized. And what's happening now, because things are, have been being recorded for years now, it really started back in 2014 when more um, individuals of the black community were like, let's record this and upload this so that people see what's happening to our community. What essentially what it comes down to is humanizing the pain, humanizing what's been happening for populations of color for so many years, looking at individuals that are, whether they're of the black community, Latinx community, of the native community, of any of the underrepresented populations that are not white, we need to look at, look at the fact that it all boils down to people seeing parts of themselves in populations of of color. And that is for people that are are white, seeing that all of us are human, you know? And if we look at the trends of Mm. of what's happening in this country, it's going to be a more and more multiculturally dominant society. So when I say multiculturally dominant society, what that means is there are going to be individuals that are of varying race and ethnic backgrounds all in one body i will be the norm of being part white and being part penobscot and mousy and there already are plenty of people that are multicultural yeah but that's the trend that we're moving in to be we are going to all eventually be multicultural human beings uh so just acknowledging that piece of it and i think it's really important for our next generations to really really get this sorted out uh, because it's it's a lot. It's a lot to put on our yeah. generations that are up and coming. And in terms of what's needed, I, I think it's been great to see a lot more uh, white people advocating and supporting populations of color and their needs. And, you know, my hope, and I think a lot of hope is that that white people are in this for real, that it isn't just because it's popular and yes. some fad or some show 
but that people genuinely understand and are willing to support populations that have been suffering for generations. Uh, so, and I, and I fully get it why members of the Black community and members of the Native community are a little hesitant because they're like, oh, wow, suddenly people are going to advocate. Suddenly white people are going to advocate and, and support our needs and support our thriving and, you know, a lot of trust has been broken over the years, so it's going to take some time. But I feel like if white people continue yeah. to show up and and do the work and allow themselves to really dive deep into history and understanding how things have played out well before our time and then how they... Can you imagine? Hmm. You just said... Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. We just did an episode on trust. And to think that all of a sudden they're like, oh, we're going to advocate for you and support you. How the... Holy cow, is that like jar of marbles of your trust is like empty. I mean, and this is like hundreds and hundreds of years worth of trust being broken. To me, that just blows my mind, like how all of a sudden now they need to take a leap, this like kind of leap of faith, basically, and say, how are we going to trust you that you're going to actually support us this time and things are going to be different? Oh, that just, it just blew my mind just now. I was like, I don't even know if I was putting myself in their shoes, how I would even begin to trust, but it has to, we have to take that step. We have to be able to continue, you know, uh, them trusting us and changing the system and, you know, making a difference. They ha ha well, trust, you know, is in very small ways that we can add to our trust jar, our marble jar, you know. So, oh, I just wanted to say that because I was just thinking going, oh, my God, yeah, there should be hope. Yes. And, oh, my God, how is that going to happen <laughs> if there's, like, no trust at all? It makes huge difference when you have trust in your people and the people that are supporting you and not just dropping you like you're nothing. Oh. Yeah, and populations of color have had so much resilience because they are still here. <laughs> so they good. They are still here. And there, and there are members of yes, they are. communities of color that are absolutely thriving despite all of the trauma that's happened that's been passed down. And despite all of the blatant assaults on communities of color. And when I think about it, you know, and Katie, you're talking about this idea of trust. In order to build that trust, um, people of the white community need to continue showing up. They need to continue showing up. Yes. And it's not, and not backing out when it gets hard. Populations of color have not had that privilege to back out when things get hard. Their, the, like, their skin color is not a t-shirt that they can take off. You know, it's something that they are faced with every single day. And, I th and in order for real change to occur, white people need to see this through and stick through. Yes. And, you know, and I speak from that from my own place yes. too, because even though, you know, being part white and being part Penobscot and Maliseet, you know, for me, I'm white passing. So for me, I have not had to experience remotely the same amount of discrimination that my Native family members have because I present as fully white. So there are things that I feel like I have gotten away with mm -hmm. that if I was more brown with more brown features, I would not. I would not have been in the same situation. And I look at the ways that my Native family members have been treated and the research points to and shows that Native people are more likely to experience harsher punishment when, mm -hmm. when incarcerated and also in the school system. And, you know, some of my work has been um, with the Justice Policy Program in Maine looking at the school-to-prison pipeline. And what's been happening for populations of color is school push-out into prisons. And for me, like, that yeah. is not okay at all. Children do not belong in cages. And once a young person, especially a young person of color, enters the criminal justice system, they are tagged, they are hooked. And it's gonna be so much more challenging for them to no longer be in the cycle of incarceration. And that's also how it relates to the disadvantages that populations of color have experienced. It um, Just populations of color are 
grossly overrepresented in our prison populations. And there's a lot more that I obviously can say about that because of my my previous work and having done uh, work in the prisons for over five years, co-facilitating healing circles with indigenous people of Maine, um, ranging from minimum to maximum security. And the things that I've seen and heard, they all make sense to me. And there needs to be more ways that people continue learning about all the ways that people of color are affected by racism and racist policies. Yeah, absolutely. And I think us talking about it now might just be a tiny little sliver to, you know, in our little tunnel way into that and spread it and have awareness for it. And you said earlier about humanizing all of us, that we are here together as a collective and someday we're all going to be multicultural and come down to the fact that we're all, we all have needs and all of our needs are going to be very, very similar within each other. Marshall says that he prefers to focus the attention on what we're needing rather than agreeing or disagreeing about what we are for what, you know, we could be who, you know, what we are, or, you know, murderers, rapists, you know, polluting the environment. And like Marshall said, it's not about disagreeing or agreeing with any of the things. It's just what is it that we're truly needing and to humanize all of that. Because what you were saying, how a lot of the tribes and or people of color have been incarcerated and have been on this path. Um, the video, I think it's like the 13th or something it's on YouTube and it does talk about and it does take a black person's life through back then what it was like for them and a lot of times they were incarcerated for things they didn't even do and it comes back to what you had said about this thinking this way of thinking that we have where we have these judgments we see this enemy image people as a monster for where this even came from so it's shifting that thinking of we have needs and we want to take care of everybody you can't have part of a tribe be you know doing their own thing over here we have to do this together it's a huge collective consciousness that we need to do together otherwise the tribe the tribes don't necessarily they'll fall apart if all of the parts aren't working you know the bicycle needs all parts to work and if there's some parts that are falling apart which is what we're in right now they're falling apart we need to come back together and change that idea of thinking where we don't see them as a monster anymore. We don't see other people as these horrible people. We see them as, you know, they have trauma and they had needs and they've had ways of their life that have been generationally patterns that continue to happen. You know, see them with all of that stuff instead of these horrible judgments and thinking of these people in these different in these ways that are not helping. Yeah, and on that note, um, it's just the fact that hurt people hurt people. You know, if people if people are feeling hurt and and they're not even able to connect with what their needs are and are have experienced so much trauma and stress in their nervous system, hurt will continue to happen. So what empathy offers is a way to warmly accompany people with trauma or feelings of hurt, anger, despair, and it allows for us to tap into what we are truly needing. And when we are able to connect with what we truly need, those needs can actually flourish within us and within our communities. So I just wanted to kind of tie that back to the Marshall statement you shared earlier, Katie. Yeah. And oh, I had a question for you. If have you in your healing circles that you've had, um, has there ever been in like an experience where you saw some violence in the beginning and then being in this circle that brought in some empathy, how it sort of shifted? Do you could you take us through maybe something of your experience that might have shown that? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I would be co-facilitating the circles in the prisons, obviously being incarcerated is stressful and people feel angry and people feel hopeless or people feel despair. And, you know, I've had a number of different occasions. One occasion that comes to mind is I was facilitating um, a circle in one of the prisons where one of the incarcerated individuals was 
picking up and slamming the table in the room that we were all sitting in. And that individual ended up leaving the room and, and they were obviously really upset. And when we met again, we still welcomed and allowed that of an individual to come in. And um, the next time that we all met, they apologized and also shared what what was going on for them. They were able to tap into what was really happening and they were feeling scared. They were feeling angry. Um, you know, there were things going on with their family that they could not do anything about because they were in prison. So it allowed for this space of vulnerability where, where usually um, this individual would have continued maybe to resort to violence in some capacity, but then being welcomed back in allowed them to feel that sense of safety and trust to actually verbalize what was going on for them rather than some physical experience that can cause harm. So I have more experiences I could share, Katie, but I wonder what you think about that. What a impact and powerful place to be a part of that, to see. I think about the kiddos that I've worked with that show violence such as like flipping the table or throwing a chair and we welcome them with open arms every single day and to know that they are here and you know no matter what we're going you you belong and that you're accepted and that yesterday's behavior that every day is a different day and allowing that sense of community in a circle and giving these kiddos chances or adults. You know, we all collect uh, behavioral patterns and anger can be very much one of them, which is just a, you know, alienating, which is what Marshall says, you know, way to wanting your needs met. You have needs underneath all of that anger. And it's so cool that you were able to be a part of a healing circle to bring in empathy and really have a circle to where people are feeling safe to open up because a lot of people who are incarcerated, you know, there's so much going on, scared and fear and anger, resentment, all of that. And to find a safe place where, yeah, your brain is in fight or flight all the time and which is, I'm assuming, what maybe perhaps they might be in. And so to like come down to a very calm place to be able to express and work on the situation in empathy is a beautiful way to go about it. And it's too bad though that it seems like our system doesn't hold space a lot of times for these circles that can be super impactful for the people who are, you know, in prison and or people who are not, you know, and I wish that there was a way to spread more of these um, restorative justice systems in place to help heal our country. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I think there are some more attention is being brought to um, alternatives to incarceration and utilizing restorative justice. And, uh, and another piece on that too is, you know, Native communities have been using these restorative practices for thousands of years. It's nice to see that other communities are starting to adopt Native and Indigenous practices. I think it's also important to kind of just acknowledge where they came from. You know, the, that uh, Native yeah. communities have, have been implementing again, restorative practices for quite a long time, much, much longer than before they became popular, so to say. Ah, uh, why haven't we done any of that? <laughs> we should have been listening to them this whole time. Yeah, well, for me personally, um, you know, I have seen some change and I'm not sure what I can attribute this to, but for me, it I feel grateful that at least people are learning now. I think it's better late than never uh, about all of this and, and how yeah. we, we can really shift our ways of operating and how we can meet violence with empathy uh, instead of meeting violence with violence. Yeah. yeah. So are there any final thoughts or things like that you have to share, Katie? I just after, you know, this call, feeling hopeful for our society and our country that things are going to be moving in the right direction 
and you brought to light that the Native Americans have had this way to give empathy and having healing circles is something that they have been doing. And I really hope that we bring that into this country more and brings maybe some maybe some liberation in that, that we are going to do this and we are going to make a difference. And here we are talking about it, acknowledging the impact that we have had and bringing that awareness inward and to really reflect on what this means and what this will look like for the future. And I am so glad and proud that we get to have this podcast to share that with. And what better way to bring that more into people's lives as they listen. And I hope that, you know, we do make that shift into more empathy and not meet violence with violence and just build that trust and listen and truly, truly listen. It's a hard thing to do. When people are up here and really angry about things that are going on, it is very, very hard to not be up there with them or shut down, you know? So practice, practice, practice. This is why NVC is a practice. It's just a tool to meet each other in that field and try to see each other's needs and hear each other and I'm very grateful that you were here today and got to discuss something that we've been yearning to be discussing and it's a good time for it it very much is thank you yeah thank you so much Katie for having me be a guest and you know my final parting thought that I want to share is so the three pillars of the healing circles, um, the native healing circles are truth, healing, and change. And if we look at that from an NVC perspective, the truth piece is everyone is longing for truth. Truth telling is really powerful. And then when truth telling occurs, you know, the hope is that there will be listening, deep listening and moving yes. from truth telling to deep listening that allows for healing. And when healing happens, change happens. So those are just my final thoughts of what I wanted to share. And thank you so much for uh, having me as a guest today. I'm so glad that our recording uh, worked and uh, I look forward to hearing more updates on the podcast that you have going with Kyle. Yay! Thank you so much, Katie. It was so good to hear from you and be here with you, and I'm so grateful. Well, Living Connected, it was wonderful to have you join us today, and I hope that everyone out there got a little bit more from us and I appreciate you all listening and I will see you next week and Kyle will be here. Love you all. Bye. I wanted to remind our Living Connected listeners of two events coming up. The first one is a workshop in Bend via Zoom starting on November 5th. It is a six-week course. This workshop is about changing self-talk into self-care and it will provide a deep understanding and a creative tools to reframe our mistakes with nourishing thoughts instead. The second event is the NBC Festival that NBC Academy is putting on November 20th. There is a discount code for this event. Details for both events are in the details of this episode. Both are incredible and totally worth trying out. We hope to see you there.